1: What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
2: Karen and I would like to thank all the listeners who are supporting us at Patreon or have provided reviews on iTunes. If you'd like to join in on that support, check us out at monstertalk.org forward slash support or at patreon.com forward slash monstertalk. Thank you so much for your help in producing this show. It's
0: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. Mr. Dog.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Darren's away this week, but we'll be back soon. Recently, my social media feed blew up with links to a story about a biology research project looking into Loch Ness and the legend of Nessie with the technology of environmental DNA. I was somewhat concerned as I saw numerous responses from my friends online saying, Nessie isn't real, why bother? And other things along those lines clearly missing the point of the actual study. If these well-intentioned folks had bothered to read past the headlines, they'd have seen that the actual study was actually quite interesting. Yes, the news story headlines were about Nessie, but the underlying science was about using DNA research to assess the various species living in multiple Scottish lakes. Imagine that, using monsters to promote science research. Well, you can see why it's right at my alley. So I reached out to the lead researcher, Professor Neil Gimmel, and he was kind enough to conduct a Monster Talk interview on very short notice. Not only that, but this interview took place while he was on the shores of Loch Ness. He turned his camera to the window at one point and showed me the still waters outside as we talked. Alas... Our connection was so poor that I didn't keep our video going, and honestly, the quality of his side of the call got pretty bad at some points, but I believe after editing, all but one of our exchanges turned out to be understandable. For that one, you'll hear me interrupt the conversation in post-production to explain what he said. Other than that one spot, though, I think we got a good enough recording that it should all make sense. My apologies for the quality where it drops, but keep in mind that we're using a free technology that allows us to conduct real-time video conferences across the ocean such that I could be lurking in my basement in Georgia here in Monster Talk Central while he's in his cabin on the shores of Loch Ness. I wish we didn't have quality issues with the audio, but Professor Gimel is certainly worth listening to, and I hope you find our discussion as interesting as I did. Oh, and here's another little bit of Monster Talk trivia. Dr. Gimel got the idea for doing his eDNA research of the loch while reading Darren Nash's book, Haunting Monster. A link to Darren's book, which is now available in paperback, will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org.
0: Monster Talk.
2: So Professor Neil Gimmel is the Ag Research Chair in Reproduction and Genomics at the University of Otago. He's been in the forefront of media coverage surrounding a collaborative project to use environmental DNA to look at species president in Loch Ness, home of the famous legendary Loch Monster, Nessie. So welcome to Monster Talk. Neil.
0: Yeah, hi, Blake. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thank you for making time for us. I know you've got a busy schedule right now.
0: Yeah, it's been a bit crazy. And we've been, uh, we've just arrived here at Loch Ness two days ago. So, uh, well, actually, no, yesterday. So I'm even losing track of time. It's been that busy.
2: <laughs> I imagine so. I It's interesting. So I saw several stories you know, rolling around on my social media because we cover monsters and cryptozoology and science. Everybody was sending me this. But what surprised me was a lot of my friends on social media are very much pro-science people, but they seemed honestly to be a little concerned about the use of Nessie in a science project. I don't think they were actually reading the article because the article sounded wonderful to me. I, I always think, Using monsters to promote science and uh, advance those kind of ideas is a really great project. But can you tell us a little bit about the study and what the purpose of it
0: is beyond what the headlines are telling us? Well, yeah, sure, Blake. It's it's pretty straightforward, really. I mean, we want to understand what's living in Loch Ness. We don't believe there's a monster there, uh, but we think that there's um, a great opportunity to use this environmental DNA technology to understand what is living there, the fish, the plants the microorganisms, the invertebrates, the whole shebang uh, can be studied now using this environmental DNA. And and who knows? Maybe there is something unknown to science uh, in the murky depths of Loch Ness. Um, Scotland's got a monster problem. So there are about 13 different lochs here in Scotland that have uh, recordings or reports of some kind of monster or mythical creature. So Nessie's the most famous of the bunch. But Loch Mora, which is another big loch here in Scotland, has a monster by the name of Morag. Um, there's another loch that's just south of Ness called Oik, and that's got a monster called Wee Oiki. And Then there's a whole, whole bunch of others that uh, have been reported and have names that are predominantly in Gaelic and I can't pronounce. But the, <laughs> the, point, is that, the point is that there's lo- lots of legends of monsters here. Uh, particularly related to the, the, the locks, and I guess it's um, underpinned by the uh, Celtic myth of the, the water horse or the Kelpie. So uh, or we will be sampling from some of these other sites where monsters may be present, and we'll be looking to see if there's anything different about those um, between Loch Ness uh, and, and those other sites, or indeed what's similar. So we'd expect to see a lot of the same fish species. We'd expect to see a lot of other things. I guess what's different amongst those is also interesting to us. But, yes, the idea is that we've tried to use these control sites to figure out what's special about Loch Ness, but it turns out that maybe there are other sites that have monsters. Who knows? <laughs> so
2: the uh, w- from a, uh, a species perspective – what, where do these uh, lochs get their fish from? I mean, uh, do all of them, uh, are they connected in some way? I-
0: so Loch Ness well, it sits at the north of Scotland, and it connects to the ocean through the Moray Firth, um, and there's a short piece of river called the Ness River. It's only about six miles long. So Ness effectively connects to uh, the Moray Firth and then the North Sea on the east side of the north side of Scotland um, by about six miles of river. Um, And so it's open and uh, salmon and other species can swim uh, through the Ness River into Loch Ness. So there's migratory eels, there's migratory salmon, lampreys. They're all known to to move uh, from the sea into Loch Ness. Occasionally, seals are seen in the Loch and other species that have obviously come from the oceans. Um, And then from Loch Ness, you go down through the southern end into what's called the Caledonian Canal which is uh, basically modified natural rivers which connect a, a large number of other locks, including Loch Oik, which I mench- mentioned before, which has the monster called Wiyoiki. So clearly the, the locks are all connected, and if there were, were monsters, perhaps they can have a party from time to time because they could move between these sites. So there is a degree of connection. So Loch Ness is not separate or isolated in any way.
2: Neat. When you're looking at the DNA, what would distinguish uh, a lake monster from the more mundane species? Yeah,
0: well, it would be something we can't easily um, identify on the tree of life, I'd, I'd say, for a starting point. So we have, we're working on the premise of, of hypothesis testing. So we expect that when we go looking at our, at our samples, that we'll see DNA from a variety of fish species, including things like trout and salmon and perhaps lamprey and eels and pike and a whole variety of, of, of fish that have been previously documented in the lock. And then we would expect also to find a large number of bacteria and algae and, and various other things. What we are less uh, sure we will find is any evidence of some of the hypotheses that have been put forward to explain Loch Ness. So, of course, the most outrageous of these is the so called Jurassic hypothesis.
2: This is the one section where Neil's audio cut out to the point that I need to insert what he was saying. Uh, What he says is the most outrageous hypothesis is the so-called Jurassic hypothesis, that somewhere out there is a prehistoric species like a plesiosaur that somehow escaped extinction. If such DNA was found, while we don't know exactly what plesiosaur DNA looks like, we could make an educated guess about what it would look like, even though we don't have any intact DNA to compare it to
0: but we can actually use a process called ancestral state reconstruction to figure out what a plesiosaur sequence should look like within reasonable bounds. So we would expect a plesiosaur sequence to sit somewhere in the modern tree of life um, around about where the crocodiles and birds are.
2: That's fascinating.
0: That's sort of ballpark. And so so we're looking for a sequence, not a crocodile and a bird, not a snake or lizard, Um, something reptilian clearly, but new to science. And if we found something like that, well, I would be highly surprised, but I'd also uh, then be setting out to do further experiments to prove that we could replicate that finding. And in fact, actually, it's a very important part of our process is that we need to have some level of replication and we also need to have some level of observer bias so that people don't look at the Loch Ness samples more than they look at any other samples, because the temptation would be to to spend more time and energy looking at Loch Ness because there's meant to be something special there. So, Anyway, so the plesiosaurus, it's the most grand of the ideas. There are some of the other more mundane ideas. Uh, A giant catfish, um, like the Wells catfish, which is a European catfish. These are monstrous animals. So they grow to uh, 14 or 16 feet in length. Um, They can be hundreds of pounds in weight. Uh, And in fact, you know, thinking about a standard family car, you're probably talking about something that's about half the size of a, a, a standard family car. Um, and I would have to say, if something that had the head the width or half the width of my car's bonnet, then, and that I saw that thing come up uh, underneath my boat, I'd think I'd seen a monster too. So these, the Wells catfish is supposedly introduced by the Victorians into our waterways here in Britain in the late 1800s. They can, we think, live to 100 years of age or more. So it is possible, even if they weren't breeding, that one of those fish has survived. Uh, over time and is in Loch Ness. Although, again, improbable, but you just don't know. And then the other idea that Adrian Shine, that we work with has put forward is the idea that migratory sturgeons might be an explanation for some of the monster sightings. And again, we know what a sturgeon's DNA looks like um, and we could look for evidence of whether we see any um, you know, sequences that approximate what we think a sturgeon would look like. Uh, in terms of DNA sequence, program.
2: <laughs> I, I would love it if there was a really good photograph of that, so we could have the sturgeon photo. That would be,
0: <laughs> you know, clearly there's a, a lot of sturgeon up in North America, pig sturgeon, things like that. Again, big animals, 16 foot in length, hundreds of pounds in weight, live for years, um, and and they're not even the biggest ones. I think the biggest ones are the ones from Siberia. So. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of plausible explanations that we can test, so, and and we will we will do so. Yeah.
2: Other biological concerns about the the species in the lock that this might be helpful for, like people who are does this tell us anything about the population or merely the existence? Because I, I was curious about whether you know the DNA samples tell you anything about how many of an animal might be present.
0: Yeah, it's. Um, it's very hard to quantify off these data at the moment. That's something that many people around the world are trying to figure out. So it's, it's pretty much uh, you can get an idea of abundance from the total quantity of DNA sequence, but it's hard to scale that because, you know, big creatures will release more DNA. Small creatures will have less because they've got fewer cells. So we need a better way to quantify that. Um, so at the moment, it's, it's predominantly descriptive. This was present but we don't necessarily know how many of them there are. Right. Do you, um,
2: does the depth of the lock when you're doing these samples, are you expecting uh, to see, uh, like, do you think the temperature and other factors will, like, affect the distribution of the DNA across the samples?
0: Well, it certainly affects the distribution of, of species. Um, so we are going to be looking at temperature profiles and salinity profiles. We know there's a thermocline in Loch Ness. Um, In fact, actually, the thermocline has been responsible for a lot of the um, potential sightings that have been made over the years, we think. So logs submerge and then reemerge from time to time, partly driven by the fact that there is this temperature differential which creates currents, and sometimes these currents run counter to the wind direction. So what happens is you might have a northerly wind, and yet people see objects moving against the wind, so the natural instinct is to say, okay, it's moving uh, therefore, QED is swimming, um, and therefore it's a monster because it's going against the direction of the prevailing wind. But, in fact, Adrian Schein has shown that there's d- dynamic water movements in Loch Ness driven by, by thermal differences. So, so I think underwater weight uh, is, is one of the things that they've discovered, and that the water – and the currents can be moving in the opposite direction to the wind-blown currents. Interesting. So you get objects like logs that rise and fall in the water, so they submerge and then they re-emerge, and occasionally they can be moving opposite to the general prevailing wind flow, and the explanation that many people have, have said is, okay, it's moving against the wind, therefore it must be swimming. But it doesn't have to be. It could easily be the currents that um, occur within log Ness that are driving that.
2: Uh, you're looking at water on this particular study i i this is me just hypothesizing, but would it be true or would it be reasonable to suspect that uh the sediments that fall on the bottom of the lock form something like a a historical record in the same way ice cores do? Would you be able to do a like a mud sample at the bottom and and tell about the species variations over time with that kind of a sample
0: yeah maybe uh they can preserve and sediments. Uh, longer than it can in water, but we just don't know how long. A lot of, lot would depend on, on basically how protected it was from from microorganism damage. So funnily enough, tonight we were just talking to Adrian Shine about um, cause that he took of sediments 25 years ago for a project called the Rosetta Project. And it was quite revolutionary, really. So Adrian managed to uh, get a device 230 metres down to the bottom of Loch Ness, and then he managed to... Uh, sample deep into the lock uh, six meters plus and That goes back, nine and a half thousand years. So basically to the time of the last glaciation here Wow he's, He's got a couple of cores like that He's got some others that are shorter and he still has them on a shelf up in the top of his loft So they've been stored dry, which is not ideal people that do this coring would routinely freeze them but we are going to give it a go and see if we can get some DNA out of his cores and see if we uh, if, if if we might be able to find evidence of, of what species were present um, in these sediment cores. Well, I don't know, uh, three, four, five, nine thousand years ago. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the prospects of getting something good uh, are probably pretty low. But you know, within my team that we've assembled here, we've got people from the University of Copenhagen. Uh, from Tom Gilbert's lab, and, you know, Tom's an expert on paleogenomics. If anyone can do this, he probably can. So um, we'll give it a go.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle,
2: Mothman, consciousness,
0: philosophy,
1: UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot...
0: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
1: physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every
2: Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. That's fantastic. It seems like a low-cost, low-risk way to approach the problem without having to do new core samples.
0: Yeah, well, core sampling's really hard. Yeah. So um, Adrian described it as a bit of a moonshot, and he, uh, probably he's probably right. It would have been a lot of work, and if we were to do that sort of project again, it would, it would take quite a lot of kit and, and, and time. So I think he had uh, a rig deployed on the bottom of Loch Ness for a couple of weeks, and, um, you know, that's a lot of boat time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and a higher level of risk that you might actually achieve nothing. So, um, the weather here is actually phenomenal at the moment. So if, if we'd had all the equipment, maybe we could give it a go again, but, um, not this trip.
2: Do you, uh, so you, you've got this team together. How expensive is a project like this? Is, is this something that will be affordable to come back and do again and get some sort of samples over time?
0: So it's it's hard to guess exactly how. Well, I mean, I should know how much it's cost. I, I can tell you that <laughs> most. I can tell you that the boat and the skipper, the Loch Ness um, project has has donated to us, so we haven't had to pay for any of that. Pretty much everybody that's working on the project is donating their time for free. I'm paying for some accommodation. I'm paying for food. Um, I haven't paid people to fly here except for my, my student. And myself uh, so so at that regard it's a reasonably low cost project where it gets expensive is when we start buying the gear to to take the the samples so um, that was a few thousand dollars uh, when we process the samples it's going to be um, a few thousand dollars more so what are we looking at now um, probably ten thousand dollars in reagents costs uh, Probably with the accommodation bills and airfares, are probably another ten thousand um, dollars. So not cheap uh, by by any stretch of the imagination. And then it gets even more expensive when we start going to the lab and doing the sophisticated genetics. So there you're probably talking about thirty thousand uh, dollars, and then probably another thirty thousand dollars to do the sequencing. So that what's that, that adds up to pretty much close to a hundred thousand bucks. Um, and the money coming from. I'm mostly paying for it out of uh, bits of money that I've managed to accumulate from projects over time. Uh, And I'm also uh, hopeful that some suppliers will uh, donate their services. So, for example, the $20,000 worth of lab costs that I mentioned, um, I got an email last week and it looks like a company might come to the party on that. Uh, The sequencing, uh, it looks very very likely that a company called Illumina, who are one of the leaders in sequencing technologies, will probably help us with that and we look to have some support from a local company here in the u k so hundreds of thousands of dollars is the answer but not paying that
2: that's fantastic though i mean i it, 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 it's uh it, it's expensive yet it's you know it's it's it sounds like some really good return on the dollar for this kind of data that you're going to get out of this
0: yeah so this science that we do genetics is, is not a cheap science by any stretch of the imagination the, the equipment and the chemicals are, are expensive but you know the insights that we're gaining from the work are, are quite extraordinary from time to time so it's easy to say oh this genetics project is very expensive or some the more cynical out there would say, oh, that's a lot of money to, to spend looking for something that does not exist. And it's not about the monster. The monster is an opportunity to get people interested in the science. Okay? So for us, it's all about what's in lock, yes. And it's, it's measuring that biodiversity. It's understanding what the life of that lock is like in June 2018. It's establishing a baseline from which we can do further experiments down the track or help people who have interesting questions of their own. So, for example, we're working with UK collaborators who are working on the patterns of movement of migratory fish species. Well, our knock nest sample is going to be really, really important to answer some of their questions. There's another project that's worked, the Scottish Natural Heritage Society, and, and they are interested in what are the biological markers of healthy lake or lock systems. And again, this will fit into part of the total package of what people know about locks in Scotland, and, and and we can make some assessment about how healthy Loch Ness is. So I think we'll get multiple science publications out, out of this work, um, as well as being able to explain to people what we're doing, why eDNA is powerful, and uh, hopefully get them excited about the prospect of using that in other contexts. And who knows, we might even find a monster.
2: <laughs> I tell you what, Neil, you, you, this project is so close to my heart this is exactly the sort of thing that we try to do with monster talk uh to you know the the fascination in monsters just naturally bleeds over into a a really uh useful way of looking at uh biology and trying to understand science and to understand uh evolution and how all the things are related oh there's so much there i i just i'm i'm just really stoked for you i hope you find something really cool um and I realized that really cool is not particularly scientific, but you know, I <laughs> I love this. So
0: yeah, so do we, and and that's what we're excited about. We're excited about the opportunity to uh, excite people about science. I mean, basic fundamental science. If I told you about eDNA without a monster hook, um, we probably get two column inches in a local paper if we are lucky. You know, we've been in the headlines of papers all around the world we've got media coming um, you know this week from major channels in the US. we've got NBC we've got CBS um, you know we've got Sky and various other channels here in the UK BBC um, and, and what a great opportunity to, to, to get people excited about an adventure because it is an adventure we don't know what we're going to find. Um, it might be quite mon- mundane at the end of it but I think I think it's still an adventure. And uh, Edna is cool. I mean, it really is cool. So there was a paper published in about a, about a month ago uh, describing sharks uh, in the Pacific, and the Edna tools uh, identified forty four percent more shark species than any of the other tools that we would use routinely to measure shark uh, diversity. Wow! So normally, what you normally what you do is you put a chunk of flesh out on a hook and you put it next to a video camera, and you look to see what comes around and eats the meat, right? That's basically how we survey sharks. And that works pretty well, but some sharks are actually pretty shy, and so they, they don't come to the meat, they don't eat it, they don't get video recorded, and you never know they're there. But with eDNA, you do. So here is a way to look at our world and identify those hidden things, those hidden creatures, which um, are important parts of, our total understanding of those systems, um, but that we've been missing. So I love that we are able to use this tool to explore our world in a a different way. And it turns out, even though I told you the price tag for the Loch Ness project is pretty high, if we were to do it with submarines or drones or, you know, nets, towing nets up and down the loch or sonar, that's all really expensive too. You know, because you're paying for people's time, you're paying for their expertise, you're paying for the equipment. So a science project like ours, which is going to produce maybe three papers, give or take, plus get a whole heap of uh, people interested in science, hopefully. Um, even if it's a hundred, two hundred thousand $200,000, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me.
2: No, that sounds great. Um I know you have another thing to that we're bumping up against, so I'll, I'll end this. But I hope that uh, when you get a little further down the road with your sample investigation, we can talk again about how things are going because this is really interesting.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, and and you know, it's it's all part and parcel of what we're doing is trying to you know get people interested in in, in potential because I think say maybe not next year, but in five or ten years time. These sequencing devices will be cheap enough. It'll, it's not going to be quite Star Trek, but these sequencing devices are going to be cheap enough uh, that you'll be able to buy one probably at your local corner store uh, that you can plug into your phone or whatever personal device you're carrying. And if you wanted to, if you chose to, you could monitor your natural world in a, in a way which is quite unprecedented. You get a lot of DNA sequence information. You don't even know have to know that much about DNA sequence because the app on your phone will probably interrogate that, and it'll spit out to you, these species are present here. I mean, it it becomes a a really interesting toolkit for understanding what's present in our environment. And, you know, recreational fishing people might be interested in that. People might be interested in this if they're, uh, you know, going out surfing or swimming to know what species are out there. Um, They might be interested in just running it across the salad bar at their local um, (laughs) (laughs) restaurant to make sure there there aren't any bacteria that are likely to kill them. Yeah. (laughs) These are important things. So I I, I predict this technology is going to change our world in a lot of different ways. Uh, And Loch Ness is just a starting point for that conversation and that education of people and help bring them on that journey.
2: Let's finish up with uh, every episode when we interview someone new, we try to ask them this question. What's your favorite
0: monster? Yeah, so that is a really interesting one. Um, I was fascinated and also terrified by Medusa when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and and does that count? does that count?
2: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. This is
0: mythical, I guess. So
2: yeah, my daughters, oh, well, the the, so, gor- so. the gorgons and uh, the, the the whole idea of snakes. Yeah. Did you ever see um, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau with uh, Tony Randall? Uh, no. Yeah. At- it- they have a wonderful medusa in there she's she's really it's well, it's tony Randall, but he's his, uh, his snake hair is uh, sort of uh stop motion in a Harryhausen kind of uh, oh,
0: effect. I, I might remember that yeah yeah anyway so i i'm 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 remembering some of the old stop motion stuff you know from the black and white uh i mean yeah medusa was scary
2: yeah know. yeah she was uh yeah the
0: the
2: uh it is. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or she still is scary <laughs>
0: Still, is scary, um, and so so that was that was that was quite terrifying. And I also remember a, a show called The Tomorrow People, which was a British show, and and uh, these 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 Tomorrow People had telepathic powers, and they could do a thing called jaunting. They could uh, basically will themselves to be any part of the universe. Anyway, one of those episodes, they met a sort of Anubis like god, um, and and that thing terrified the crap out of me too. So um, yeah. So probably you, like a dog headed sort of thing, yeah, yeah, dog headed sort of human, yeah, thing. But wow, it, but I you know, ate hearts and killed people. Well, I I, I've, I've
2: heard of that show before, I love to watch old British television, so I'll have to see if I can look that up.
0: Yeah, it was pretty good, actually. That, that's, that's the 70s, we're going, we're going back a ways now, but fortunately, there's a whole bunch of people who have uh, loaded that stuff up onto. Onto YouTube and other other sites, which is just wonderful. If you've got a nostalgic streak, which I do from time uh, to time, I
2: do. It's 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 uh, almost debilitating.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I try to get my kids to watch it, but they just don't want to watch it because it's just not exciting enough. I think. Um, yeah,
2: it can be a little slow. I just got my daughter to watch uh, Night of the Demon or Curse the Demon. Uh, Which is based on an MR James story. I I just love that uh, last night. And she was, I think she was genuinely scared, even though I think the effects don't really hold up very well, but it's such a good story. So, anyway, I better let you go so you have a break before your next interview. Uh, Thank you so much. I'll send you an email when this is going to go live. And I I really appreciate it and hope you do well with your research. And uh, I'd like to hear how things turn out.
0: Monster dog.
2: You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and you just heard an interview with Professor Neil Gimmel, who's conducting an environmental DNA survey of several Scottish lochs to find out what species live there, and perhaps to find any undiscovered monsters. Like Professor Gimmel, I don't expect he'll find plesiosaurs, but as you've heard, he'll be able to test several hypotheses about the loch and the life forms therein, with many different watery environments being tested, I commend him for combining a love of monsters with a love of good science. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms.
1: Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions to hear from the leading lights of science and scepticism. For 2018, we want SciCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now the triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the psy babe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Shrub, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings and, of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true. Conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine and the deniers of evolution, climate change and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit CSIConference.org. That's sciconference.org.
2: Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
1: Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. London's West End, here, in the winter of 1888 series of bizarre and violent murders occurred, which remain unsolved to this very day. Jack the Ripper. Was he a prosperous London surgeon? Perhaps a member of British royalty? Well, a bullshit team has unearthed spectacular new evidence which suggests that Jack the Ripper was in fact the Loch
0: Ness Monster.